Hello there. My name is Stefan Frost, the host of Game Devastation, the podcast you are listening to right now. Just as a heads up, sometimes there are opinions on this show. Sometimes there are curse words on this show. Sometimes I just sob for about 20 minutes. I don't know why people keep listening to it. Anyway, all these things are from me. They're not really representative of the company I work for or previous companies that I've worked for. So just a heads up, then that's about it. Okay, legal disclaimer now over. This episode of Game Devastation is brought to you by Pixel Dynamo. You can find the latest news, reviews, and updates to all the games that you care about. Check out PixelDynamo.com or follow them on Twitter at PixelDynamo for your up-to-the-second news on the games you care about. Also, in a less commercial way, this is a pretty sweet site. So if you haven't checked it out, PixelDynamo.com, go read it. I think I said PixelDynamo.com enough. PixelDynamo.com. Okay, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to this episode of Game Devastation. My name is Stefan Frost. Today I'm joined, and I'm going to butcher your last name more than likely, uh, with Raphael Van Lierop. Pretty good, yeah, pretty good. What, what is it actually? It's Van Lierop. You're, you're, you're very close. Okay. Thank you for making me feel not as bad uh, for saying that. <laughs> oh, it's been butchered much worse than that. All right. Well, I try. Uh, anyway, this guy uh, is, I'm super excited to talk to you today, is the creative director at Hinterland Games, and you're working on a game called The Long Dark. So uh, tell me, what does a creative director do at Hinterland Games? Uh, ooh, that's a good question. Um, well... There's only one of me, so I guess what I do is um, I have sort of general oversight of the project. Um, so I founded Hinterland uh, in late 2012 and um, really just got the project up and, up and running with the early funding and the early concept and whatnot, and I've built the team. And nowadays... Um, my role is a little more high level. The team has grown to be about 25 developers. Um, when we started for the first year, there were about six or seven of us. So I was essentially the, the main designer on the project for most of its development, um, including designing most of the systems with um, Alan Lawrence, my technical director, and all the early game systems and design tuning and level building and whatnot was was mostly stuff that I did with my art team. So, you know, we were quite small at the beginning and, and you know, in this in that kind of a context, you wear a lot of hats. So I wore my business hat and I wore my studio hat and my manager hat, and my creative director hat, my writer hat, my designer hat, whatever. Um, and that hasn't changed a lot, but there's certainly, you know, the team's grown. The game has um, a, a large community now. We have over 400,000 players now. Um, so, you know, a lot of my time is now focused on thinking about how to uh, interact and grow with the community. Um, there's a lot of work that we're doing on story mode that takes a lot of my time. Um, I still essentially provide the overall creative oversight for the project. So all the design, all the writing, the art direction. Um, and, you know, I have a very, very talented team that I work with that, uh, that is very, very good at working from my high level ramblings and translating that into something tangible and, and amazing. So, um, yeah. So basically all the things is what you're saying. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, like I said, we're, you know, we're a small studio. So when you're in a small studio, you, you have to do, you have to do everything. 
And we really encourage, um, you know, we, we hire people who are, who tend to be multidisciplinary. Uh, we're not, you know, you can't often afford to be super specialized in a small studio. So we, we do have people that wear a lot of different hats and, um, and that's, I think, one of the benefits of working in a smaller team and, 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 and you know, on a, on a smaller project. With Most of my team comes from that larger AAA industry. Um, you know, my last big project had a team of about 175 developers on it. Um, this is definitely different from that and and in mostly good ways. You know, uh, I, I really love it's, it's actually been harder over the last sort of six to nine months as the game has really, really taken off and we've had to grow the team because you lose a little bit of that straight connection to the game. But, you know, having said that, I still get in for every update and go and tune things here and there and tinker around the, in the levels and move things around and play around with them. So, um, yeah, a, lot, a little bit of everything. And, and that's part, part of what makes it so much fun. So I want to talk to you a bit about... Um how Hinterland Games started. But before that, I, I wanted to ask, how did you get your start in the industry and how did it get to Hinterland Games? Uh, I started out as a writer, actually. Um, outside of games, I was working as a technology writer in uh, for a few different 3D companies in Montreal. Um, and one was a company called Matrox, which is still around, um, makes 3D graphics cards. Or Back then, it, it was a competitor with ATI and NVIDIA. And, uh, and then I worked for a couple other companies that were doing 3D animation software. And so what happened was all the companies that were using the technology that, that we were working on happened to be either in the film or the video games industry. And I'd been a gamer my whole life and one of those people who, you know, loved it as a hobby but never really thought about whether you could do it as a living. And, uh, and my exposure to those projects kind of let me learn more about the nuts and bolts of of the industry and really piqued my curiosity and I just realized, you know, that's what I really wanted to do. So I started out by just using that writing experience and the contacts that I'd made to start getting some small writing gigs, whether it was um, some early localization projects. So I did the North Americanization of a whole bunch of, um, of PlayStation games that were brought over to the, from Japan for the first generation Xbox. Uh, like Steel Battalion, for example, in some of those games, um, Fatal Frame 1 and 2. And that's those were some early projects that I got involved with. I also got to do some early writing and, on, and design work on some on some games. But it was pretty clear to me early on that, you know, if you wanted to get true development experience, you needed to be in a studio. And back then, um, Vancouver in Canada was the was really the hub of the of the industry. Montreal was just starting to take off. Ubisoft was was there, but they were still in their kind of early licensed games phase. They were doing like the Batman games and you know whatever. They were just working on on the first Splinter Cell, but it hadn't uh, it hadn't come out yet. And so back then, really, if you wanted to work in in the industry in Canada, you needed to move to Vancouver. And I was fortunate enough to get a, a job at Relic Entertainment in in Vancouver, working on Dawn of War as an assistant producer. And that was really you know, the beginning of my game development career, essentially, and, and my education, I should say. Um, and that was really a role that kind of put you in the middle of everything. And I was responsible for. You know, I was really the bottom rung of the ladder. Like I took meeting minutes and I fetched pizza for people and I, you know, did whatever I needed to do and kind of like worked my way up from there into um, eventually a producer role and where I was responsible for my own team and my own project. Um, and I did that for a while on, on some cool games, Company Heroes being one. 
and Dawn of, some more Dawn of War games, um, all real-time strategy games. And I just realized that I kind of wanted to work on something different. I've always been really interested in storytelling, and I felt like maybe RTS wasn't the right genre for me. And I had an opportunity to go work with a startup called Radar, which was doing um, IP development for uh, back then what we were calling uh, cross-media and then became transmedia, and now it's called something different. But the idea being you're creating entertainment properties that were meant to exist as video games and films and television series and whatnot. And that was a startup. We had quite a bit of funding and then things kind of went off the rails and, and um, a bunch of the projects that we were working on failed to come to fruition. And it was sort of right around that, uh, the, sort of when the credit crisis hit in 2007 and suddenly all the private money kind of dried up and, and our business model was really based on, on um, having private investment. So that was a really interesting education, um, but it ultimately failed. And uh, fortunately, I was able to follow up by um, taking on a gig at Ubisoft Montreal, which was a studio that I always respected and always, you know, wanted to work at one of the top, you know, three game development studios in the world. And um, I had a chance to go work there on Far Cry 3 as the narrative director, which was a really awesome, amazing experience for me. Um, and did that in the pre-production phase for about a year and a half. And um, unfortunately, Montreal was was a challenge for for my family. Um, it's kind of a hard city to integrate into if you're not francophone. And my wife is from a, from the West Coast here and was pretty homesick, and we were all pretty homesick. And and uh, so we chose to come back and actually came back to Relic, and I was the game director on Space Marine and uh, finished that game. And, you know, did so kind of with the uh, with THQ kind of crumbling around around us and all the other studios that they owned and went through a pretty rough period, you know, towards the end of the project. It, it kind of like really, like a lot of developers, I think, kind of caused me to question what I was doing. You know, did I really want to be putting my life into this industry if that was the way things were going to work? And kind of went through a bit of a dark time and, and at the end came out of it thinking, you know, I really do want to make games, but I don't want to make them like that anymore. And that was really the beginning for me of, of starting Hinterland was really, you know, thinking I want to do something that's more personal and I want to do, I want to create something different. And that's more of an expression of my own creative values and my own ideals and ideally can communicate a little bit of a sense of who we are as Canadian developers. And that's really important to me having worked in the industry for many, many years on projects that were destined for international audiences where you really aren't um, kind of encouraged to express yourself and your your cultural identity because that's really not, you know, you don't want to alienate anyone. You want to make the game as kind of generic as possible so that the whole world can feel like it's theirs. And, and I get that. I think that's smart from a business perspective, but it's not always fulfilling from a creative perspective. So I think a lot of those little bits and pieces kind of ended up feeding into what Hinterland is becoming and what the Long Dark um, is becoming as well. So um, you basically, you move back, you start the sound company. How did you kind of move forward? Because uh, that's kind of a big deal to kind of say, well, you know what, I'm not going to do the AAA thing anymore. I'm just going to start my own thing. What was what was the first step in that? Was that finding other people? Was it finding funding first? Was it you just kind of you know, creating a, a vision for the game that you wanted to make? I mean, wh what did you do for that? Well, I really wanted to first have a strong idea of what kind of game I wanted to make. And so I started putting together the, the pieces that would eventually become The Long Dark. Back then it was called Survival 
story. It was a very, you know, is very similar similar concept, but it certainly like you know game concepts change over development, and so back then it didn't have a name. Um, and uh, once I felt like I, you know, had something that I could really sink my teeth into, and I thought, you know, this this seems like something I would like to work on. I I didn't I didn't think about it really in terms of anything other than, um, you know, I'd been playing a lot of Fallout Three the previous year when it came out, and really fell in love with that game and loved the the freeform exploration of it. And I'd also I've also been a fan of Stalker for that of that whole series for many years. Mm-hmm. And I just looked to those influences and I asked myself, you know, would it be possible to make a game that was set in the wilderness that was almost entirely about exploration and where combat almost was non-existent? And really the focus of the game would be exploring an abandoned environment and something very atmospheric and just soaking up that atmosphere and, and being on the constant lookout for resources and really where the environment was really your main obstacle and your main challenge. And that was really the, kind of the starting point for for what became The Long Dark. And when I had that in mind, you know, obviously you can't make a game by yourself. Um, I wanted to try to find other kind of like-minded developers. So veterans of the industry who were looking for something different, who probably had done their time in AAA and, and just wanted to work on smaller projects with smaller teams. Um, but I knew that I really, you know, in order to kind of attract the talent that I was looking for, I, I needed, you know, I didn't want to go to people with hat in hand and say, hey, you know, leave your high-paying AAA job for this risky startup where there's no money and, you know, let's go try to make something amazing. So I, I did go through the process of raising money first and we're pretty fortunate in Canada. We have a program called the Canada Media Fund, um, which supports Canadian film, television, and, and interactive industries. And it's quite competitive, but I was able to to raise some money to build a prototype. And as soon as I had some cash, I went out and I was able to recruit a few people. The first was Alan Lawrence, who's my tech director still today. Um, he had been at Volition for about 16 years at that time. He was the tech director on the Saints Row franchise. And he'd worked on Red Faction and a bunch of other awesome games there. And yeah, he, he was really kind of like me, where he'd worked on all these big productions and just wanted to work on something that felt more personal and, you know, all with a smaller team. And so he was my first kind of key hire. And then things kind of grew from there. Um, and as I said, yeah, the first year of development, we were really only about five or six guys. And we just, you know, worked on our ideas and we refined the core mechanics and we prototyped a bunch of stuff. Um, the game actually started out as an iPad game, if you can believe it. So we did work on that for a while and got to the point where we realized it wasn't really going to be what we wanted it to be. So then we shifted our focus to PC and that ended up being, you know, really the, the, the most important decision that we could have ever made on the project. And it was, you kind of have to put your head in the context of the time where it was right around when everything was blowing up on iOS and the app store and iPad was huge and everybody was making games for the, you know, the, the iPhone and the iPad and the thought of making a PC focused game kind of felt like taking a step backwards. But um, yeah, in the end, it's been you know an amazing thing for us because it allowed us to go to Kickstarter, it allowed us to go to Steam Early Access, and really Steam Early Access is where the game started to really take off, and then that eventually opened the door to, to the Xbox One, which we which we launched recently as well. So so yeah, it was really a process of kind of identifying what concept I felt excited about. Definitely building some kind of idea for what I wanted Hinterland to be. Uh, I really was mindful of wanting to create a studio and a culture um, inspired a lot by 
you know, Pixar, which I know a lot of people say, and not that I have any expectations of having that kind of success, but really like wanting to drive a creative culture and one that's really focused on quality and, and, you know, never at the expense of, of, uh, or, or never in, instead of the bottom line, like not primarily motivated by financial considerations or business considerations, not ignoring those things, but, but primarily being motivated by design and art and aesthetics and emotion and, and all those kinds of things. And then, you know, industrial design firms like IDEO, which are small and agile and known for being very, very good at problem solving. And those are the kinds of kind of characteristics that that are really important to me. And those are some of the sort of early pillars of what I wanted Hinterland to become. And, and hopefully we're we're hitting some of those notes with a long dark. And, and if we continue to be successful with it, hopefully we'll continue to hit those notes with our games in the future. Uh I wanted to also talk to you about establishing the core game play loop and mm-hmm. figuring that out. Cause you were saying that when you had that, you know, core group of six people, uh, you were starting to kind of refine the process. So uh, talk to me about finding what the core gameplay loop was in the game for you guys and how you arrived at that. Because I think um, survival games are a little bit different in traditional sort of um, AAA development, usually combat is kind of like the big thing. Mm-hmm. And this game is, is not as, it's not as central to it, right? The, the main thing that you're doing is, is much different. So I wanted to talk about how did you find that loop and then how did you kind of refine it and get to the point of where you're, you're saying, yes, this is what the player should be doing and why they're going to be addicted to this game. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, I think working in the industry, I think you kind of encounter sort of two different types of designers or, and there are many types of designers, but they kind of fit into two buckets. One are sort of bottom up designers who start from systems and then create experiences around those systems. And then the other are top down who start with an experience they want to create and then build the systems to support that. And, and I'm very, very much a top down designer. I'm very, very much one who starts with the player experience in mind. What do I want the player to feel? What do I want the player to do? And for the long dark, it was always about exploration and vulnerability. So the environment is your is your obstacle, and it's also your savior. And, and we've tried to build contrasts into hopefully interesting contrasts into everything that we do, where we have this um, this environment that's hostile, um, completely neutral to your existence, which is very unsettling for people. You know, a lot of people talk about the game as though it's a horror game. And I was asked them. I said, "Well, why do you why do you think it's a horror game? Why you know is it scary? You know, and and they can't quite put their fingers on it. And it's because the game is really unsettling because they feel vulnerable and they realize how weak they really are in the face of this majestic, um, you know, natural setting. Um, you know, we we definitely um, prototyped a lot of systems around movement and navigation and." Um, you know, knew that the game would essentially be very, very resource driven. So the idea being, because the sandbox was always intended to be, you know, really a case of like surviving for as long as you can, but, but, but never fully being able to, no concept of being able to win ultimately. Like you're never going to hit a threshold where you suddenly survive a hundred days and now you've won the game. So, so the game is really uh, a machine that is, pushing you towards your eventual demise and you're trying to make good decisions along the way that prolong, you know, that um, prolong your life and put off that inevitability for as long as possible. Um, And so, yeah, all the systems are built around that. And that's where we came up with ideas like how we handle the scarcity of resources and some of the randomness around the loot 
um, and the loot items that are in the game, the resources that spawn, um, how we handle um, things like the degradation of your of your clothing and your tools and whatnot, um, how we handle wildlife AI and spawn behavior. Um, you know, an example of that is how we, do, you know, our our way of putting an active threat in the game was to add wolves, which are kind of like the main, seen as being the main antagonist in the game, even though they're quite secondary to things like cold and starvation and exhaustion and dehydration, which are your main, your main considerations. But wolves get a lot of focus because they're active. You know, they wander around the world. They come after you. If they detect you, you have to struggle with them to survive. And, you know, I think they're, they're an interesting, they've been a very interesting system for us because they're, they have elements of sort of more traditional action games, but what we try to do with them is is make them as much as possible kind of like a resource sink for you, just like everything in the game is a resource sink for you. So you have to go out into the world to find resources to survive, and by going out into the world, you're constantly facing the obstacles that are presented by nature. You're calories are constantly going down you're getting colder every minute you're outside your clothes are gradually wearing out because of you know a blizzard that you get stuck in or you fall down a hill or an animal attacks you or whatever you get sick from eating bad food you know you need to stock up on fuel and water to be able to overcome food poisoning etc etc so the whole process is really one of this push and pull of like well i need to go into the world and get resources to continue to survive and whenever i go into the world i'm spending resources and i'm encountering these obstacles and the trick is to balance the game in such a way that success always feels sort of just out of reach so it's not hopeless you feel like there is always a chance that you'll survive another day but it never comes easily and i think that's one of the reasons why the game resonates with our players is that you know it really goes back to a design decision that we made very very early on about how we would treat our player, and we always said we're not going to play. We're not going to hold our player's hand. We're not. We're going to put information in the world for them to find. We're going to contextualize as, as much gameplay relevant data as we can within the world itself. But it's going to be up to them to learn it and understand what it means in order to be able to survive for longer and longer. And the first time they play, they're going to die really quickly because they don't get it. And the second time, they're going to live a little bit longer. And the third time, they're going to live a little bit longer because every. Every time they play, they build their knowledge. And that, that to me, is one of the most exciting things that we've done in this project is we've kind of broken away from that old mold of a game kind of spoon-feeding you that content. And, you know, we've moved into a place where we're a lot more like a traditional simulation um, where the player really has to learn how the systems work in order to be successful. And what that means is that when the player does have a success, it's a very personal success. It's not that their character leveled up to a certain degree that they were able to be successful. It was they, as the player, had certain knowledge or were able to earn certain knowledge by playing the game that allowed them to survive longer and longer. And that was all kind of, those sort of pillars of the game design were all put in place very, very early in the project. And fortunately, they've actually not changed at all throughout development. They've become more refined and, you know, certainly we've enhanced them and added to them and there's a lot more systems and mechanics now but that core loop of go into the world to look for resources otherwise you're going to die but when you're out in the world looking for resources you're actually using resources and you're constantly being challenged and you have to overcome obstacles and look for that next shelter and that next bit of food and that next you know better jacket and the moment where you can start a fire and repair your gear otherwise you're going to die like just that constant kind of push and that's where 
you know, we've never designed the game to be addictive, but that's where that addictive quality tends to come from is that, that sense of it always being just, just out of reach close enough that you can just, you almost can get it, but you just got to keep going. Uh, so there's been something like the, the last person I actually talked to on the show, um, was a gentleman that was, uh, the design lead on the flame and the flood. Oh yeah. Um, and we were talking about survival games and one of the big things that seems to be in them is specifically harsh death mechanics. So mm-hmm. when you die, you die, you lose all your stuff, you lose all your progress. You got to start over. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what sort of pushed you guys to do that sort of, you know, not holding the player's hand sort of ideology in your game design? Um, was that Forrest Ellen that you talked to? It was. Yeah, yeah, great guy. Yeah, it's funny. We were we were both at um, at E3 in the Microsoft booth, almost on opposite sides of each other. Um, uh, yeah, great, beautiful game. Uh, so, what pushed pushed us to um, harsh penalties for death? Well, we we knew that permadeath would be. Let me rephrase. If players could save anywhere or restore their game from failure, then those all those hundreds of little decisions that they have to make to survive become meaningless, um, or more less meaningful. Let's say we we do have players that sort of hack the game so that they can save whenever they want, and for whatever reason they still find it compelling. Uh, I don't you know I can't judge that. I mean I, I won't tell someone what they should or should not do to to have fun with our game. But I can tell you that the game's been designed around permadeath. At least the sandbox mechanics have been designed around permadeath. And I think that is all about trying to make the decisions that you are forced to make in the game feel like they have meaning. Um, and, and, and it really does drive that psychology of like, you know, wanting to keep pushing yourself to try harder and harder. And, um, you know, if you know that taking a bite of that piece of raw meat you know, if it gives you blood or food poisoning, you can just reload and, and make a different choice. Well, then what's the, you know, there's no danger. There's no threat. There's no risk. There's no, there's nothing there. It's just an empty, hollow experience. And, you know, we try really, really hard to create those decision points in the game where the player does have to make a hard call. Like, you know, do I head out into the, you know, into the, into the wilderness to try to find fuel to make a fire and cook this bit of raw meat that I have, or do I just say, screw it, I'm just going to like take it, take my chances and, and see if I get lucky. And, you know, if I don't get lucky and end up with food poisoning, well, it's going to be days and days of suffering for it. Um, you know, if the player can just kind of reload and, and undo that choice, well, the choice kind of has no meaning at, 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 at you know, at that point. So that's really, really kind of where where it came from for us was just wanting, you know, we put so much energy into trying to balance the game and create interesting interconnections between the systems so that players do end up in these really kind of emergent moments where they have to make these hard decisions. And those decisions seem to be what really, really drives player engagement with the game. And as soon as you make those decisions, you know, you know, editable, then, um, then you lose that. And so, yeah, that's the simple, the simple answer. So there's a single player sandbox mode and then there's a single player story mode, which you uh, were talking about earlier. Um, what are, what are the main differences in the development of those two uh, game types? Well, the story mode, which, which we've actually been very secretive about, um, 
partly because of being in early access, but we can talk about that more later. Um, the mechanics in Sandbox are, are basically the foundation of the game, the foundation of the story mode of the game. Um, the difference in story mode is that you can't have permadeath, <laughs> right? Um, so it, it does require that we take a little more authorial control in terms of how we balance the game and guide the player a little bit more through that experience. And I think that that works. I think that's a, that that's okay because I think when you play story mode, that's what you're looking for. Um, I think originally when we made the decision to bring the sandbox to early access, it was um, it wasn't something that we had planned originally for the game. You know, we had done our Kickstarter and we were kind of working on the game, and we we started hearing about early access from other developers and started looking into it a little bit and thought, well it's not really designed for story-based games. It's really more for these like open-world, multiplayer-type experiences. And then the more we thought about it, the more we realized, well, it actually would be really, really handy for us if we could get a lot more playtesting feedback than we have from our, from our Kickstarter community. And then we thought, well, we, we actually could sort of separate out story mode from sandbox, or from the, from the mechanics of the game by creating this standalone, non-narrative sandbox mode. And so that's, that was kind of the origin of, the, of that mode. Um, I think when we made that choice, you know, it was mostly to preserve the story mode for our launch moment so that players would have the maximum, you know, they would have the maximum impact on our players. So nobody wants to play a, a half-finished narrative game, you know, when it's buggy and incomplete and the dialogue's missing and the missions don't work and all that kind of stuff. Like, there, there's no real benefit to releasing a, a you know, a, a, an alpha version of a, of a story-driven game from my perspective because you're not going to play through it more than once in most cases. So the first time you play the story mode of Long Dark, it has to be finished and it has to be great. So, you know, we, we use the, the sandbox as a means to refine mechanics and get feedback from our community, and it's kind of grown from there because we certainly didn't expect to have the, the kind of reception and, the, you know, the number of players that we, that we find ourselves having now. Um, and I think because of that, the relationship between sandbox and story mode has kind of changed because originally, as I said, we just thought we'd put it out there to get feedback and then we'd shut her down and then we would, you know, release our story mode and then sandbox wouldn't be its own thing. But what we've realized over the months is that it's it's very much its own experience and it really, really appeals to a certain type of player. And I think a lot of our sandbox players are really anticipating story mode and can't wait to get in there. But I know that once they finish, you know, the episodes, they're going to want to go back and play more sandbox. And so we're, we're not going to ever stop developing sandbox as long as we still have fans that want to play the game. We'll continue to evolve it um, in parallel with, with the story mode. And so, you know, all that to say, it's kind of like grown to the extent that it's become its own thing. And um, and I actually think it's 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 pretty awesome for us because I think people can you know, with sandbox people can have their own narrative and their own world and they can kind of create really it becomes about player story more than than anything we're trying to tell and and but then we also have our own space where we can do that we can be much more authored and create a world and create characters and story and and do that you know part of the experience or create that part of experience which is really important to us which is that storytelling part. And, and this allows us to kind of have both of those things without either of them stepping on each other. And, and players that are really looking for that more free-form, self-directed experience can still have that. You were talking about uh, early access, um, which is 
a topic we actually talk about quite a bit on this show because we typically talk with indie devs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a pretty hot button issue. Some people think it's the worst thing in the world. Some people think it's the greatest thing in the world. Um, and I wanted, uh, you know, looking at the Steam uh, reviews on your game, it's been very well received. Um, mm-hmm. And so I wanted to talk about what makes, uh, as somebody who's launched a successful early access game, how did you make sure that when you were launching this, that it was going to be something that people would enjoy and, and not go, wow, this is, you just gave me a buggy piece of crap. What, what's mm-hmm. going on? Well, that's exactly it. We, we didn't give them a buggy piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> we, we knew, we knew that that was, you know, even when we were looking at early access, you know, a year ago, more than a year ago, um, it already had that reputation and it's probably even worse now. And we, you know, we're, we're pretty, um, I won't say that we're perfectionists, but I, I will say that we're, we're quite proud in terms of wanting to put a, an experience that we're, that we feel is up to our own internal quality bar. And we never would have felt comfortable putting out a game that was really buggy and half finished and, and crashed and all that kind of stuff. So our answer to it was to, you know, take the game to a point where we felt like it was, it was already quite good. It wasn't complete. It's still not complete. But what was there was polished and as bug-free as we could make it and performed well and was beautiful and was like a coherent experience on its own. Um, And that was really the way that we, you know, that was our insurance policy basically against, um, you know, having that kind of like a response from our community. And even with that, we still, for the first several months um, or first few months, I should say, there was a, it was really an uphill battle for us because it felt like we were inheriting like all the negativity around how a lot of other projects had been run on early access. And it took time, I think, for us to prove ourselves. And, you know, we, we committed to doing regular updates. That's something that you often hear from people that, you know, that these games launch on early access and they sell a bunch of units and then the developers kind of disappear and they don't update the game. So we've always been really, really mindful of that. And we put a, a significant update every month. Um, we've updated the game, um, including hotfixes, over 50 times since we launched it. So people see that we're dedicated. We're very, very active with the community. Um, you know, we, I think we've, we sort of strike a, a balance between being open and, and um, encouraging of community feedback, but also being very, very clear that this is our vision and this is our game. So one of the things we also saw when we were researching early access was that a lot of projects seem to go awry because the community feedback becomes overwhelming for the development team and they don't really know how to parse it or how to act on it. And then, and then what ha- tends to happen is the community can, at first they're thrilled about it and then after a while they realize that the game's kind of lost whatever was good about it and you can't make a game by committee. You have to still have a very firm, clear vision of what you're trying to create and then the community feels disappointed and, and loses interest because they feel like the game's just, it's not being run by the development team anymore. They feel like it's being run by the community. So we've always been really clear about that with our community, that we are we love having their feedback. We're very, very grateful for their involvement and, you know, and all the faith that they kind of put into us. Um, but we also have always been very firm that this is, you know, this is a game that we're making for them. We're not making the game that they're asking us to make we're making the game that we want to make but we're making it you know with their feedback so i think actually that's been a message that has it could have probably backfired just as easily but it actually has resonated really really strongly with our community and i would i would say that generally speaking our community is unusually um 
productive and positive and just, you know, really good at, you know, policing themselves and the feedback we get is very, very useful. There's not a lot of noise in that community, which I'm very, very grateful for. It was, it was a little bit noisy at the beginning, um, you know, when we, because it felt like I think we just inherited a lot of players from other communities and it's really settled down into a very mature community. Um, probably one of the more mature ones on Steam, I would say. Um, and then, yeah, and then fortunately we, we were invited by Microsoft to bring our expertise from early access to Xbox game preview. And that's been an interesting experience too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think I understand the, the negativity towards, um, the early access model. I've bought lots of games on early access that I've really regretted afterwards because they clearly shouldn't have been shipped. Um, so I think the, the key thing for us has been, you know, putting out a quality game that doesn't cut any corners, that feels like a complete experience, even though it's clearly not, um, you know, being attentive to the community, listening to what, what they have to say, but not being governed by the community and just being available really. And, 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 and continuing to update the game and show that we love it and, and pour like kind of our hearts and souls into it. And I think that's what the community can see. And they can see that attention to detail that we put into it and how much we care about it. The game has, is currently single player. Um, typically, you see a lot of these games like H1Z1, Daisy, Rust, that sort of thing. They are massive multiplayer almost. Um, was multiplayer ever a thought for you guys or was it always like we're going to do the single player thing? It's always been single player. It's always been uh, a solo isolating experience. Um, I don't enjoy multiplayer games, generally speaking. Um, I just find that they tend to devolve into a lot of negative PvP kind of stuff that's not that enjoyable. Um, so I was pretty determined to avoid that. And um, when you're trying to create a, a, a game that's set in a post-disaster you know, environment that you know, it's like a wilderness, I mean, essentially being lost in the wilderness, being by yourself really, really works well. So it kind of just like worked out that way. And, you know, I would say multiplayer or co-op are our number one most requested features from the community. And, and I, I, I understand the reasons why that is. I think it's great when you love a game so much that you, you know, people don't want us to make an MMO or anything. They just want to be able to play with a friend. They just want to be able to bring their spouse or their buddy in and, and have like a two-player co-op thing. Um, but yeah, we're, we're really focused on creating the best single-player experience that we can. And if in the future, you know, we create another experience, maybe there's a chance we'll do something and that's, that's more multiplayer. But, um, you yeah, know, I think the kinds of things that we want to do with the game, they only really work in single-player. And that's, that's where we want to be. That's what we want to excel at. Um, and there's some practical realities as well. Like it's very, very, it's hard to make a multiplayer game. And there's a lot of technology there that is frankly a pain in the ass and it's not worth it to me to put time and resources into that. I don't think that that's the kind of experience that we want to make. And I don't think that's where we should be putting our effort. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's popular and, and certainly if all we cared about was making a lot of money, then that would have been the right choice for us. We should have done a multiplayer game or we should have put in co-op or whatever. But um, we've always been pretty clear um, that our goals are to create a very, very atmospheric single-player experience, and, and that's what we're focused on. 
I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, um, but I'm going to ask this question anyway. Um, when you create the feeling of stress for a survival game, uh, how do you do that? It, I mean, the permadeath, I think, kind of helps with that. We were talking about that. Uh, the the solo experience, you're the only one there, that loneliness. That's part of it, I'm sure, too. But mm. how did you kind of go about creating that survival stress uh, feeling in the game? Well, it's certainly the mechanics drive that, but I think we also pay a lot of attention to the aesthetics of the game. Um, so we, you know, we have amazing sound. Um, we have two very, very talented sound people and we have great music that helps with the atmosphere. It's very sparse, but just kind of cues in at the, exactly the right moment. Um, the art direction is, is very much created to, you know, emphasize those contrasts between the beauty of the environment and, and the hostility of the environment. Um, and I think that's a big part of what creates that tension is that contrast and people can kind of get lost wandering through the wilderness and, you know, and how beautiful it is and then realize, you know, wow, I'm actually freezing right now. I better figure out how I'm going to survive through the night. So I think that's a, a big part of it for us is that, you know, certainly the, the mechanics are there and they draw, you know, that feeling of constantly being under pressure, like the calorie meter is constantly going down, your cold bar is constantly going up. You know, you're getting tired over the course of the day. You're always getting hungry. You know, you're, you have to monitor those things. Otherwise, your condition, which is your general health, starts to degrade and gradually you'll die. Um, we also have a pretty robust for, like health system with a bunch of different first aid afflictions like food poisoning and, and you know, sprains and, and blood loss injuries and things like that. And we've actually, in the, in the update that we're putting out this week, we've actually expanded it really significantly. We've added a whole bunch of new afflictions and we'll continue to as well. And I think all those, you know, it's not one thing that creates that tension. It's, it's all the things together that create that tension. And I think in our game, it's very rare that you die from one thing. It's really more of a death by a thousand cuts. So you have to keep an eye on a lot of different things and you have to make decisions about a lot of different things. And sometimes you have to make decisions in this moment that you won't understand the ramifications of until an hour or two down the road. And I think that's where a lot of the tension comes from is, is having to make hard choices and not always understanding what the outcomes are going to be. Um, and again, like contrasted with the environment and the style of the game, the aesthetics that can be very, very, um, it creates a very immersive experience. And I think that's part of what, what creates that tension as well. So speaking of the aesthetic, it's it's very stylized, mm-hmm. um, which is you know not always something that that people kind of gravitate towards. Um, but I wanted to ask how you guys arrived at that um, art direction. We just wanted to make something beautiful, and it's really that simple. We um, we didn't want to be another grim, dark apocalypse. You know, we, we, and it's funny to look now because, you know, I don't know if you were at E3, but this year, this is the E3 where everybody's got color, you know, like suddenly all the games that were brown and gray before are really colorful. And it's, it's kind of funny to see that trend. Um, but yeah, for us, it was always important that the game, because as I said, like we didn't conceive of the game, you know, oh, look, survival games are popular. Let's make a survival game. Like that's not at all how it was originated. It was really more as I said, about wanting to create a very specific type of experience and have it be beautiful and artistic and, and really, you know, want the player to feel something about the world that they're, they're, that they're experiencing. So um, we always knew we wanted it to be beautiful. 
the stylization, you know, allows us to, to push away from photorealism, which I think is is very hard to do well and not interesting to me personally. Like I don't find another really realistic looking environment to be that interesting. Um, and uh, and really, I wanted the game to look like a like a painting, like you were playing a painting. And so that's kind of where a lot of the early thinking came from. Um, and I, you know, I think it works in our case because we do it does stand in contrast to the to the gameplay in a way that seems to work for people um and you know on a, on a practical level i think it's it's you know we're we're a handcrafted world we don't have a procedural world like a lot of other games and again that was an intentional choice to want to create you know be able to create something beautiful and go and place every single thing and create the terrain a certain way and have it feel like a real place and uh so those are all, those things kind of all feed into each other. What do you think has been the largest challenge uh, for developing this title so far? Um, in the early phase of coming to early access, I would have said it was really learning how to, like, you know, communicate with, with our players, how to deal with community feedback. Um, you know, but... As I said, we, with our community, kind of evolved to a place where things are really, really great. And so I think the biggest challenge has been to stay true to the original vision and not allow it to be too swayed by the vocal minority. Um, I think it's very, very common that particularly when you have a strong community that's mostly based in forums and whatnot, you tend to hear mostly from the people that are um, that tend to be a little more hardcore about your experience. And, you know, we, we, we ran an interesting experiment several months ago where um, we, we wanted to understand more about who our player was because we felt like we were hearing a lot from one type of player, but we didn't really know how representative they were of our total player community. So we added three experience modes in the game. A pilgrim, which is the mode that's very much just about kind of meditative exploration. There's, you know, the survival mechanics are really toned down. The wildlife pretty much leaves you alone, so it's really more about just wandering through the environment and soaking it up. We had voyageur, which is sort of a balance between exploration and survival, and it's kind of like the the way the game is meant to be tuned and played. And then we added a stalker mode, which is named after the Ukrainian shooter series, and uh, and we pushed all those survival elements as far as we could to make the challenge, like the experience as challenging as possible. And then we pulled data from our players to see what they chose. And what we discovered was that the more hardcore players that were playing on stalker and they were the ones that tended to want to, you know, they would give them most of the feedback in steam and they would be the most vocal of the community wanting to push that the game further and further towards that hardcore survival experience. They were only about 15 or 18% of our players. Um, 35%, almost 40% of our players were actually in the Pilgrim, playing in the Pilgrim mode, where they were really looking more for that slower-paced, meditative, thoughtful experience, and then everyone else fit in the, in the Voyageur mold. So that was really, really interest, interesting to us, because it, I think it sort of illustrated for me how easy it would be to alienate a huge sort of constituency in your community for a, a, an actual vocal minority. And I think that's been an interesting challenge to kind of like navigate, you know, as we continue building the game is how do we, with one game, find a way to satisfy the, the needs of all these different people. And I think 
because our game is fundamentally a simulation at its heart and it's very, very systems driven and everything can be tuned, we kind of are able to, to play with the sliders and whatnot and make, to make these different experiences for these different players. But it's definitely, you know, something that we have to be very, very mindful of as we continue building the game. And every time we put a new system in, we, we have to make sure, you know, how, you know, we, we don't want to alienate any of those different player communities that we have because they're all looking for something slightly different. We were talking before the show about uh, the team and where they were located and stuff. Can you give uh, the listening audience here a background on uh, where where you're at and then <laughs> how this sort of uh, development project kind of came to be? Sure, yeah. So Hinterland is based on Vancouver Island. Um, the studio is actually in a small town called Cumberland, which is um, sort of halfway up the island. It's quite remote. Um, and uh, yeah, I moved here with my wife and kids um, after having finished Space Marine at Relic. And I was just done with living in the city and kind of done with working in that, that the big AAA machine. Um, and so we moved here and, and I didn't, you know, at that point I knew I wanted to start something, but I didn't yet know what it was. And I took a little bit of time to, to figure it out. And, uh, and then, yeah, I, because there was no t local talent at that point, um, by necessity, I, I recruited the best people that I could find regardless of kind of where they were. And that worked out really, really well. I was able to find a bunch of really good veteran developers who were kind of all in the same headspace as I was, where most of them had worked in the AAA industry and wanted to work on smaller projects with smaller teams and more personal projects, something more creative. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that was kind of how we started. And then over time uh, of their own volition, people have decided to relocate. So about, you know, we have about nine, 10 developers actually here in working in the studio in Cumberland. Um, and then the rest of the team is distributed, uh, between Vancouver, Edmonton, uh, Montreal, and a few different American cities. So it's evolved from a team that was completely distributed to a team that's kind of a hybrid now. And I think that's probably where we'll stay. I think that, um, you know, we, it's having moved a lot with my family for work um, over the years, I'm very, very mindful of how disruptive that can be. So I, I sort of said that I would, wouldn't ask anyone to ever move here. Um, but if they wanted to move here on their own, then we would, we would help them do that. And so we've just gotten to the point where, the project is successful enough that people know about it. The company is financially stable enough that it makes sense to start bringing people over if that's what they want. So to give an example, Warren Heisey, who's our, the UI artist on the game, he was at Bioware for over 10 years and um, just sold his house in Edmonton and moved out here a few months ago after having worked with us for six or eight months um, off-site. So that's a trend that seems to be continuing more and more. The team have decided they want to come out here. Um, and it's, you know, it gives us an opportunity to have a nice local team. Uh, they can benefit from the great quality of life that we have here. And it also allows us to scale up by hiring people in other cities if we need to. So it kind of gives us the best of both worlds. You were talking about AAA development and leaving that. Um, is there anything that you miss from AAA development, and uh, what's what's more challenging in the indie scene versus the the AAA side? Uh, do I miss AAA? I don't really think about it anymore, to be honest. I mean, 
I don't really think about indie development either. <laughs> I just kind of think about what we're trying to do. Like I sometimes I think those are just labels, right? I mean, I use them too, but I, I certainly think there's something amazing about being able to create a very, very big, complex experience with high production values, and that's something that you can really only do when you have a lot of money and a lot of people. And I think that that's definitely something cool. It's like you want to work on a big blockbuster film sometimes in, in your career if you make films, and then sometimes you want to work on a smaller, more personal kind of indie-type projects. And I guess for me and a lot of my team, we kind of got to that point where all we had done was these big block, blockbuster games, and we just wanted to do something different. So I don't miss working in AAA, but I definitely don't um, – like I have a lot of respect for people that do that. I've done that. I know how hard it can be. In a lot of ways, it's a lot harder to push through a strong creative vision on a huge project like that than it is on something smaller. Um, but I love the agility of working on, you know, with a smaller team. I, I, hate, I hated the meeting culture around working with big teams. I hated being in meetings all day long instead of making stuff. So that's something that, you know, we almost never have meetings at Hinterland. Like we will have Skype chats and we'll do quick stand-up chats or whatever, but we never have like a book sit-down meeting. It's kind of just something that we never need to do. And I think we, we save so much time, you know, for not having to do that. And we can be so productive as a team for not having to do that. And I, so I, I really don't miss that at all. Um, but I, have a lot, I still have a lot of colleagues who I respect greatly who have dedicated themselves to, you know, pushing the next generation of AAA games. And, uh, and man, they are some of the most talented people that I know. And they do great, great things. And I love playing those games, but I just don't want to make them anymore. Is there anything specifically that you've kind of taken from making those AAA games and then brought over to The Long Dark? I think that an emphasis on quality and... Um, and being able to have a firm vision, like articulate it and craft one and communicate it internally to the team so that when you do scale up, you have some sense of coherence and consistency in how the game is being made and what it feels like in the end. I think those, those are skills and, and, and um, there's processes and things that we've implemented like around that that we take from AAA that I think are very, very critical to, to the success that we've had so far. I think what I see a lot in the indie space is that a lot of teams struggle with making that transition from having been really small and then having a success and then having to try to scale up and then be able to move that forward and continue making the same game but suddenly now they have two or three times as many people and they just don't know how to do that they don't have the management or the skills or the experience to be able to do that and i think that's definitely an advantage that we have with this team being so experienced is that we are able to, to do that, even though this project is on a much smaller scale than what we've done in the past. And I think that that's very, very critical um, for us moving forward is just being able to um, draw on that experience from having made those really, really complex, big projects um, and bringing, you know, cherry picking certain processes and things um, that allow us to, you know, be very agile, be very, uh, you know, iterative and whatnot, but still have a very, very clear vision and, and kind of continue to push that forward. And I think, you know, if you look at, the game as it was a year ago and you look at it as it is today it's the same game it's a bigger game it's a more complex game there's more content it's more polished but we haven't strayed at all from the core tenets of what we wanted the game to be when we started out in fact you can look back two years and see the same thing and i think that is really kind of what separates 
this project from from um, potentially some from that come from teams that are a little bit less experienced. Uh, so I've got a couple more questions for you, and then we'll, we'll call it an evening. Um, sure. So, what considerations did you have to take into account when making this for the console? Because you were saying initially this is going to be a PC title, and then you were saying you know the Xbox One title is is now uh, doing the early access thing. Yeah. Uh, what kind of what did you have to take into consideration when you were making the difference there for a, a different SKU? You know what we we didn't make any considerations for it. We really hardly any. We it's funny. We Microsoft reached out to us uh, before Christmas last year, um, or before I should say before last Christmas, and they reached out to us in the context of the ID at Xbox program and looking for independent games and whatnot and. Um, and I was very, very reluctant to do anything with them um, because, hey, we're a small studio. We're all a bunch of like, you know, we've already splintered off from all these huge companies. We don't really want to be working with a huge company again. Um, and it sort of took four or five months of talking with them and getting to know them better and making some relationships with people there until, until I started getting more comfortable with the idea. And it was only when they started talking about game preview that suddenly we got interested because we thought, well, here's a way... Like it's not interesting to us to just come to the Xbox. Um, you know, we wanted to do it at some point, but there wasn't anything really that compelling about that idea until they started talking with us about, hey, we have this idea for maybe doing what Steam is doing with early access, but we want to try to do it on a console. And we were like, wait a second, that's pretty cool because it's never been done before. And we thought, well, there is something that you know we can use, we can benefit from our experience on Steam. We can bring something new to the table. We can work with Microsoft to pioneer this new program, of which we're still one of the only two games that's actually available. And also, maybe even more importantly, we thought, well, this is actually a pretty great opportunity to get the game on Xbox One, to get the game on a console, and be the first. So out of that tradition of survival games that have grown up on early access on Steam, we're actually the first one of those to come to the console. So, and then, you know, any console. So that was kind of like unavoidably intriguing to us as a, as a potential um, opportunity just to be able to be the first in, uh, in those two things. So, so all this backstory just explains how it came together so quickly because by the time Microsoft started talking about game preview, they then said, well, we're actually going to announce it at E3. And we hadn't even, we didn't even have dev kits at that point. This is, you know, probably, end of May, early June, no, no, sorry, end of April, early May, and E3 was June 15th, and we didn't have anything. And we were already in the process of revamping some of our UI. We had some stuff that wasn't working, you know, the way that we wanted it to, so we were already kind of working on it. And a lot of the changes that we're making just ended up being really console-friendly. Um, and so, yeah, we, we got our dev kits in-house because we're developing the game on Unity. Um, it wasn't actually that hard to get the game up and running on Xbox One. Um, because we'd already done a bunch of work in the UI on the UI side, we were you know we certainly tweaked it to make it a little bit to work better on the console. But they were all changes that we wanted to have on PC as well. So we didn't we don't have two different UIs. We have one UI that works on both, and we went from no Xbox build to passing cert in something like 26 days, which I think is one of the fastest time you know fastest intervals that's ever been done. Um, so. 
So yeah, we would never be able to do that if we had to make significant changes to the game. We were able to do it because we didn't have to make hardly any changes to the game. We, I guess the biggest thing we had to do was optimize. We realized that um, Unity wasn't quite as optimized on Xbox One as it is on PC. So things that ran really well, you know, we have quite large environments with tons of objects and we discovered that, you know, um, the game didn't run very smoothly um, as it was on Xbox One. Uh, so we did a lot of optimization and clean things up to get the performance where we thought it needed to be. So we've managed to hit like a pretty smooth 30 frames per second throughout all our um, on all our content on Xbox. And uh, and yeah, really the the work the big work on Xbox was really working with game with uh, with the team at ID at Xbox to try to figure out what game preview was going to be. And and it was it was funny because when we first started talking about it with them. They said, yeah, we're going to announce it at E3, but we're not going to launch the program until July. And then as we, like later in July, and then as we were working on the game and it was coming online and they could see that it was coming online, we started, I think they started feeling like, hey, maybe maybe they can be ready for E3. And then I, we started saying, what do you guys think about like just launching at E3? And so then it was a bit of a race because they weren't ready to launch at E3 and neither were we. And we were trying to figure out like... Are they going to be ready to launch? And then they thought, you know, is Hinterland going to be ready to launch? Like, what's, you know, are we going to... So it was sort of a real leap of faith at one point. They just decided they were going to believe in us, and we decided we were going to believe in them, and that neither of us were going to hustle to get this thing done and find it that the other side wasn't ready to go. And it literally just, like, came together at the very, very end so that, you know, on the day, you know, June 15th, Microsoft does their press conference, they announced game preview. They announced that we're going to be on it with Elite Dangerous, and then, like you know, a few hours later that afternoon, you could buy the game on Xbox already. And and so that was a pretty awesome experience. That was almost entirely about human resources, like just people on the team working hard and people at Microsoft being really supportive and wanting to see it happen. And it wasn't a technical challenge per se. I mean, there was definitely work there, but but nothing that we couldn't handle. We didn't change gameplay. We didn't have to change controls or UI. And and what we did was we we kept everything really in sync to the extent that when we as soon as we announced the Xbox One version of the game, we updated the Steam build with the same controller support. So people on Steam would have you know they were able to play with an Xbox One controller and have exactly the same interface and all the same controls and everything. So so really, there's no difference between the two games. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and. This, sir, is going to be the last question for you. Sure. Um, what advice do you have for people that are looking to get into the industry, um, you know, whether it's you're, you were a producer formerly or they want to be a creative director or a designer? What advice do you have for them uh, to get started in the games industry? You know, it's never been easier to get started, right? I mean, tools like Unity, um, Steam, the App Store, like everything is really, it's so different from when we started where everything was a closed system. Now everything is open and the barrier to entry is so, it's really low. So there's no excuse anymore for someone who's really, you know, compelled to make games and, and has some motivation to kind of go out there and make something. And I think the the thing is that, you know, is not to get discouraged because, you know, most of my team, we've been making games for 15 years and it was only in the later years that we felt like we were ready to try to embark on something on our own. Um, and a lot of people will have the success kind of right out of the gate, but uh, I think for most people it, it's, it's really a case of dedicating yourself to it and just continuing to work on it and improve your craft. And, you know, I really believe so strongly in the power of iteration. And I think that 
iteration happens and every decision that you make in the, on a daily basis and what goes into a game, every update that we do improves the game iteratively, and also over the course of your career you iterate. Every game you make is a little bit better, hopefully, than the one before. And so my advice is just get in there, start making some content. Your first game is probably going to suck. Get it done. Get on to the next one. Keep going. At some point, you're going to hit something amazing, as long as you don't, as long as you don't quit. Sounds like good advice to me. Um, all right. That's pretty much the show. Uh, Raphael, thank you so much for coming on, talking with us. Um, is there anything specifically you want to kind of shout, make a shout out to or um, talk about uh, that people should check out specifically for The Long Dark? You know, I'm just, uh, we'd love to, you know, have, have your listeners join our community. Come check us out on Steam. Come check us out. We have the official forums at hinterlandforums.com. Um, we're on Xbox One Game Preview, so you can search for The Long Dark on the Xbox Store and you'll find us there. There's actually a 60-minute free trial on Xbox as well, so if people want to just check it out, they can easily do that. Um, and yeah, I mean, we really, I mostly just want to shout out to the existing community we have. We wouldn't be here if not for them and their support, and you know everything they do helps us make the game better. So yeah, I just really appreciate them. Awesome. And I appreciate you guys listening to the show today. If you want to hear more episodes of Game Devastation, you can check out uh, Game Devastation on iTunes. Or if you go to Podbean, you can go to patreon.com backslash Stephen Frost and check out more episodes there, all for free. And if you want to reach out specifically, you can uh, find me at, at Stephen Frost on Twitter. And uh, what is your Twitter address, Raphael? It's uh, at Raphlife. So at R A P H L I F E. All right, there it is. Thanks again one more time, guys, and we'll check you later. Adios.